0: Welcome to Fishing Forward, a podcast inspired by fishermen for fishermen that focuses on health, safety, and staying ship shape in the commercial fishing
1: industry. Fishing Forward is brought to you by the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety and by the Coastal Roots Radio Team at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada.
0: I'm your co-host, Hannah Harrison.
1: And I'm Phil Loring. In this podcast, we're exploring how fishermen can be thought of as professional fishing athletes. That is, that the nature of their work demands the same high level of mental focus, training, and physical acuity that one might expect from a professional sports athlete. Throughout this series, we're using that lens to understand the many facets of fishermen's minds, bodies, and well-being, and we're digging deep into tough questions around issues that are critical to the fishing industry.
0: In this episode, we're continuing our discussion of commercial fishing and something that's sometimes even more
1: elusive than fish, sleep. As listeners may remember, this podcast is inspired by concerns that fishermen had about the impact of their livelihoods on their health, and the impacts of sleep deprivation over time is a great worry to many, especially with respect to how it may impact brain health or cause disease such as dementia.
0: Last episode, we heard from Dr. Bryce Mander at the University of California, Irvine, about how sleep works and why we need it. This time, he'll be explaining more about the impacts of not sleeping on the brain and how it affects our long-term brain
1: health. We'll also hear from Anna borland Ivy, a longtime fisherman in Alaska's Bristol Bay salmon fisheries, which are notoriously short on sleep.
0: From our last episode, I think most people understand that when we are tired, we make more mistakes. But many fishermen also worry about the long-term problems associated with a chronic lack of sleep. Does a lack of sleep contribute to getting dementia or Alzheimer's disease later on in life? Well, Dr. Manders studies those exact type of questions and explained an important concept to understand, deterministic factors versus risk factors around brain health.
2: A deterministic factor is a factor where if you have that, you're going to get this condition, right? There, there, is no, there is no way around it. You're going to get this, right? Sometimes people have genetic markers, that will determine that they will have health outcomes. Right? As an example of that, right? If they have a certain specific mutation, they will get the specific de- disease. That's a deterministic factor. Risk factors just increase the chance that you will get it. It doesn't mean that you will absolutely get it. And I wanted to emphasize that because all of the evidence there and there's a lot that suggests that sleep deficits, whether they're poor quality sleep or whether it's extremely short durations or even just not even super extreme, but short sleep durations for a sustained period of time are risk factors for a variety of health outcomes. And I think that there is enough data in the context of aging and dementia to say that sleep, you know, extremely short sleep durations, um, presence of various sleep disorders that go untreated are risk factors for Alzheimer's disease and other forms.
0: Now, Dr. Mander mentioned sleep disorders that go untreated. What he means here are disorders like sleep apnea or insomnia, which can increase your risk of dementia by 20% and 50% respectively. But that's if you don't treat them. And critically here, it's important to understand what that risk increase really means.
2: Now, granted, that's increasing your risk by 50%. That doesn't mean you're 50% likely to get Alzheimer's. That just means whatever the baseline rate of risk of a normal person is increased by 50%. So the, what's called the base rate of risk matters a lot when we're talking about these kinds of things.
1: So in other words, your personal genetic makeup, lifestyle, and other factors that are unique to you are what determine your base rate of risk. But if you experience sleep disorders or a regular and ongoing lack of sleep, It's really important to take steps to deal with that as soon as possible, if possible, to reduce your risk of dementia later in life.
2: So really one of the core messages I'd like to say is that sustained loss without anything done about it is what the true danger is there.
0: But what do we do if our jobs demand an inconsistent or limited sleep schedule? Inadequate sleep can be part and parcel to commercial fishing. Well, Dr. Mander explained that when we incur sleep debts, which we learned about in our last episode, it is possible to pay them back to some extent.
2: If you were in an extreme setting with extremely short hours of sleep, you have the opportunity to try to pay that sleep debt back if you're able to have some time where you're not in that extreme setting. This is the difference between chronic versus acute. You can do acute deprivation chronically, which is what a lot of commercial fishermen do. But if you're able to have a period of time where you can try to repay that, that could help some. Now, people talk about this in the literature about how if you go five days a week and a restricted sleep, can you pay back that sleep debt on the weekend by sleeping in on the weekend? And unfortunately, a lot of days says you can't completely recover on two days in the weekend to pay off five days of sleep debt. I don't know if we know enough about how much time it takes to repay a sleep debt. If you are in commercial fishing for three months or four months, and then you have some, an off-season, but it couldn't hurt to do some of that repay, and that'll mitigate some of the, the risk. It'll
1: mitigate some of it. And so what does that look like in practice?
2: One way you could manage that is to try to find ways to organize your schedule, maybe not on a night-by-night basis, weekly if you can, monthly if you can, seasonally if you can, to try to make up some of that debt. And I think, while it may not be a perfect cure, it would help.
0: Dr. Mander brought up another interesting point in our conversation that I think is worth sharing here. He argues that the commercial fishing industry has some of these dramatic risks due to the nature of how people make their money doing it.
2: I've always felt personally that commercial fishermen don't get paid enough for their fish per pound uh, and that markets charge way too much of a markup compared to that. And that I think contributes to this problem because it means you have to work longer hours and, and you have to generate more product, which might also contribute to overfishing in some contexts. And so there are systemic issues that are affecting this, is what I'm trying to say. Um, and maybe there's public policy work that can kind of help them not have to put them in dangerous positions like this to the same degree they are. I know there are practical limitations that I'm not an expert on the finances of it. I'm just saying that based on the lay amount of information I have, I think that's a core problem.
1: So what about doing the opposite? If you know you're going to be sleep deprived in the future, say before a fishing season, can you get some extra sleep beforehand and sort of bank it?
0: That's a very popular topic within sleep studies. And Dr. Mander says that the evidence doesn't really support that sleep banking works to reduce the risks associated with the lack of quality sleep.
2: Unfortunately, I haven't seen evidence that that really works. You can't just sleep 10 hours so that you can only sleep six hours another night. The way the brain works is it's like, I need X amount of sleep to restore myself. Once I've gotten that sleep, I'm restored. Getting extra sleep isn't really doing anything. And a matter of fact, it'll be be really hard for you to sleep past where your need is.
0: Now, for those listeners who don't get a lot of regular restorative sleep, whether due to sleep disorders, their fishing schedule, or both, This episode might have you a little bit worried about your own risk factors and the likelihood of developing dementia. But thankfully, aside from paying off sleep debt with good practices, there is some good news about mitigating these risks. Here, Dr. Mander describes the different aspects that make up our well-being as pillars of health.
2: None of this occurs in isolation, and there are a variety of different factors. If we're talking about risk for dementia or for cognitive decline which is a broad term that's described in sort of impairments in thinking abilities as we get older um, which you know doesn't have to come with a diagnosis of dementia just like i'm more forgetful than i was 20 or 30 years ago there there are a lot of different things that impact that and there is active areas of research trying to answer questions like this if i have a deficit in one pillar of health can i make up for it or mitigate the risk that comes with that deficit by really juicing in on these other pillars. So like three examples of pillars are health. Uh, Well, I'll give you four examples. Um, One is sleep, one is exercise, one is a good healthy diet, Another is a good healthy social life and social engagement. You could argue the fifth might be cognitive engagement and, and enrichment as well. So if there is active areas of research trying to understand is the risk effect of sleep deficits or the risk effects of having a poor exercise habits mitigated by having either good sleep to mitigate the poor exercise or having good exercise to mitigate the poor sleep. So one thing that commercial fishermen might be able to do is if they have, in in some aspects of the work, they're very active, um, is to to try to be physically active and physically healthy. um, And that might actually mitigate some of the deficit. I'm not saying it'll erase them, but it'll actually reduce them.
0: Let's hear now from a fisherman who lives the reality of sleep that we touched on with Dr. Mander. Anna borland ivy lives in Homer, Alaska, and has fished all over the state during her long fishing career. Today, she is a salmon fisherman in Bristol Bay, a notoriously sleep-deprived fishery that operates in the summer months when daylight is an omnipresent force in Alaska's northern latitudes.
3: Okay, so Bristol Bay is actually five river systems that are managed independently, but they all happen within a two, two and a half, three month period. And people have the ability to choose which one of those river systems they're going to be fishing in. Um, And people have their favorites because of, uh, and a lot of it is based on sleep. Like one river system, Yugashik, people that really refuse to live without sleep go to Yugashik because when they open, they might do like a six hour opener and And then they're going to be closed for a day and a half. And then they do an eight-hour opener. And then they're going to be closed for a day and a half. And during these closures, the salmon are running upstream. And they're getting counted when they get to the spawning grounds. And this is called escapement.
1: For those listeners who might not be familiar with the management of salmon fisheries, many are based around this notion of escapement or That is the number of adult fish that need to escape fisheries and reach higher parts of the river system so they can spawn. Early in the season, fisheries managers are challenged with balancing openers or the times that fishermen are allowed to fish with predictions for how many fish are coming and when they're coming in the season. And so they can let enough get by so they can get into the river, as I said, and reproduce.
0: But fisheries managers also have an upper end to escapement, which is where after a certain number of adult fish get up the river, you start getting a reduced return per spawner. So there's sort of this ideal window for how many fish you want up your river. And once you hit that number, fleets will be given the go ahead to fish more hours and in a manner of speaking, mop up the additional incoming fish. In systems like Bristol Bay that see millions upon millions of returning salmon, this can mean that fishermen are open around the clock. In Alaska, those announcements are made by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game.
3: It goes something like this. The Nishkak River System will be open until further notice. And you know at that point that you have to start thinking about how are we going to get sleep, how are we going to maximize the amount of time we can catch fish, minimize the amount of time we have to spend delivering, maximize the amount of time that we can sleep. I would say that's when problems start happening, stupid problems, because people aren't getting enough sleep because they and they know that they're going to have three weeks, four weeks,
0: five weeks without very much sleep.
1: So what does a typical day and perhaps night look like on Anna's boat?
0: Anna fishes with her husband and at least one, if not sometimes two crew members. One key point on Anna's boat is that both she and her husband can run the boat, pick fish, pull gear, etc. Having two people who can do all of those essential tasks instead of just one person, as some boats have, means that they're able to rest themselves and their crew a little bit more often. Here's Anna explaining her day.
3: So, a typical day would look something like this My husband and I set the gear, I wake up one of the crew guys, he works the gear meaning helps uh, David switch ends and uh, run the gear and I'll cook a big breakfast, wake up the other crew member, everybody will eat. We'll pick a couple nets while I'm still awake. I'll lay down and take a nap while they work the gear. Um, Setting gear on boats can be very problematic. So last year, neither one of the guys were ready to learn how to set the gear. So I have to be up for every set. And so then I might get two hours of a nap, and then I'm up. Or uh, we pick the gear again. If we move, if there's a as the tide starts to change, and and we have like a two-hour drive up into the district to set the gear again. David will lay down at the settee, my husband, and he'll take a nap. The crew can take naps, and I can run up into the district. And then again, while the crew's still sleeping, for you know they might get two hours there. Um, they and I'll set the gear. I'll wake the crew up. They work the gear. I make something to eat. We eat. We uh, pick the gear, and then it's probably time to deliver. You have to deliver every 12 hours. It's kind of a has a lot to do with the tides, where you're fishing, how many crew. Um, you've got and so then we'll find ourselves maybe fairly close to the line at the end of the tide and it's time to go deliver so david hops in bed i put the guys in bed i drive to the tender we hang around and wait for our turn to deliver then i have to wake the guys up they get out we deliver they clean the holds we anchor i take a nap a couple hours later as the tide starts to run and the fish are starting to run my husband gets up. He and I drive up into the district. I set the gear. So our crew is getting a good four hour sleep at one time and maybe a two uh, two to three hours sleep at another time if we're doing that twice a day. Um, my husband's getting a couple of four hour sleeps, and I might be getting two to three, two hour sleeps.
1: Wow. So that is not a lot of sleep. No, it is not a lot of
0: sleep. And as other fishermen have said on the show, Anna is balancing both the work, getting something to eat and the challenge of just trying to turn off when it's finally time for her to get some rest.
3: You know, we're always trying to replace food with sleep. That's that kind of helps, but it's not everything. And I have to try to, I have to be mean sometimes to increase the ability for my crew to sleep, because I can tell you what they don't want to do They never wanna go. When I say, you know, at the beginning of the season, I I sit them down and say, look, when I say go to bed, that means quick as a bunny out of your rain gear, quick as a bunny, brush your teeth and floss your teeth and hop in your bunk. And if you wanna listen to music, that's fine. If you wanna listen to books on tape, that's fine. I'd prefer you don't read and there's absolutely no video allowed because you need to fall asleep. And everybody's like, oh, I don't need sleep. I can tell you by the end of the season, they're, they're begging, can I I go to bed now? Can I go to bed now? Can I go to bed now? Um, and it's, that's a learning process where people don't, they don't know what they're getting into. And then once they know what they're getting into, I would say a lot of people won't ever go back to Bristol Bay because they can't handle the lack of sleep. And I would say as people emotionally develop, they totally understand that when Anna says, go to your bunk they're in their bunk immediately.
0: In a sleep-deprived fishery, having crew who can deal with only a few hours of rest is important. Anna explains here what that can look like in a crew member and how attitude can sometimes play just as big of a role as coffee and being able to do this job.
3: Yeah, last year I had uh, two new crew and one of them in the waking up mode was the best person I've ever worked with he, I would say to him, hey, it's time to get out of your bunk and help deliver. And he would jump out of his bunk and he would say, delivery, my favorite thing, and run out and put his rain gear on. And then I would say, hey, you know, two hours later, he'd maybe had an hour's sleep and I would say, hey, it's time to get out of your bunk and help me pick the anchor. And he would say, picking the anchor, my favorite thing, and jump out, and put his rain gear and his PFD on and go out and help pick the anchor. So that's one side and the other side. And that's after three or four weeks. He just had the ability to immediately fall asleep and immediately wake up. The other crewman was more like, "Uh, when we get to the tender, can you give me a half an hour to wake up? And I would say to him, you know what? Sometimes I pull up to the tender and there's no one there and we just have to get up. Or sometimes I pull up to the tender and there's six boats there and it could be a long wait. But I don't know that in advance. So, I'm going to tell you that if you need 30 minutes before we deliver so you can make a cup of coffee, then you need to make your coffee now (laughs) and be ready and just, you know, maybe even sit on the back deck in your rain gear or something. And I said, so you can look around at these other boats and see these deckhands that are sitting around in their rain gear, sleeping on a buoy, because they don't get to go to their bunks. So, you know, in the nicest way, I tried to explain to them that it's not possible for me to know. Two hours in advance, how the next two hours are going, and so, so I think he by the end of the season he was so tired he would just crawl in his bunk, and then I would have the other deckhand wake him up because the other deckhand was so happy and in tune and you know on his feet and awake that it really that started to help the deckhand who thought that coffee was going to wake him up.
1: Now, I personally wouldn't survive as a fisheries researcher without coffee. And I don't think I've ever been on a boat that didn't have some kind of coffee maker.
0: Same. Coffee is my saving grace on early fishing mornings. But coffee aside, Anna has seen the impacts of fatigue on decision making and argues that there really isn't a substitute for good rest, good training and experience.
3: I have seen people really lose their ability to reason due to lack of sleep. I've seen people lose their ability to concentrate even for well it takes you maybe 4 or 5 seconds to pick a fish they they couldn't concentrate long enough to figure out how to pick a fish so we become less productive as a as a you know a vessel as a fishing tool our whole vessel becomes less productive and I can see people Losing the ability to concentrate for the two minutes it takes to pull up the anchor or set the anchor, which is very dangerous works. So I think that lack of sleep is a very uh, dangerous thing on a boat. And I think that always trying to get your crew as much sleep as possible is a very smart thing on a boat, but it also has a lot to do with people's innate abilities, people's personalities, And, and quite frankly, it has a lot to do with training. We try to do as much training on the anchor, um, on the, on the equipment before we even leave the Harbor. And, and that's why I always am awake for setting the gear. I did have one deckhand who I did teach to set the gear. And that was one of that was one of the years where we could fish three people on the boat because someone could always be in their bunk because everybody could do everybody's job, except for that deckhand did not toe on the gear, but he could certainly set gear, pick gear, run gear, do everything. And so the more experienced a deckhand you have, the more smoothly and less dangerously you can work.
1: So we know that the in-season sleep schedule is pretty grueling for Anna, but I wonder what the post-season looks like for her. Is she able to pay back any of that sleep debt that she accrues, to use Dr. Mander's words?
0: You know, that is a good question. And honestly, it looks a little different for everyone. For Anna, she spends up to a month after the fishing season working in the boatyard and getting the whole operation cleaned up and put away for the winter. During that month, she's still working. She's also trying to get herself back on a more humane sleep schedule.
3: During that month, I have a really hard time getting into a regular sleep habit. And I take um, medication assistance to help me be a medical, you know, medication basically, to help me get into a, a time when I can sleep more than two hours at a time. Um, a lot of times, one thing I do during that time is I'll go put out a, a subsistence net because if I'm gonna be awake at two o'clock in the morning, I might as well be out doing something. So, and that helps me ease myself back into being tired, and trying to you know slowly get back to an eight-hour sleep cycle at night, and I also believe in naps. So I know that you know like all the information they tell you about sleep deprivation is don't take naps, um, <laughs> uh, sleep eight hours. You know, get up at the same time, go to bed at the same time. When that schedule is so messed up, it takes weeks to get it back to not being quite so messed up, and. And I use tools like, and if I'm so tired, I'm not making sense, I'll go take an hour nap. And then I find that I'm actually taking a nap after about a week or two, I'm taking a nap every afternoon from three to four or something. And I'll go to bed at midnight or one. And uh, after a nice, you know, uh, we do potluck dinners in the boatyard, and we all have a beer and, and then I'll, you know, we'll maybe have a fire and sit around and talk story until, one or midnight or one in the morning. And then I find myself being wide awake at six. I try to lay in bed for another hour or two, reading a book, watching a video, just to rest my body and then get up and do my boat work. And then, but my nap is huge. So for me, that's what I have to do to try to get back into a regular sleep mode. But I would say it's very rare And it's also because of my age, I'm going to be 65 pretty soon. It's very rare for me to ever sleep eight hours at a time, like six hours. And then an hour nap in the afternoon would be fairly normal.
0: Thinking back on Dr. Mander's comments about how sleep deprivation can affect the brain in the long term. I asked Anna if she's seen any impact in her own life that might be related to her years of erratic fishing sleep.
3: I'll be 65 in June. So I ain't no spring chicken. And up until the last year or so, I've had pretty good memory about a lot of things. And so I would say my memory is becoming less sharp and less sharp in weird ways. Like I had to do some medical test for something. And three months later, I said, huh, I wonder what that was. Like my brain, it just completely taken that memory and I had the memory, but I wasn't really sure what what why I had to do that. And then it came back to me. Oh, well, that's what it was. So I would say I'm starting to have some m- maybe my memory's getting full, as they say, that happens when you get older and you need to like meditate in order to clear out the clutter. Or, you know, I've had several different surgeries. So maybe uh, to me, surgeries is, is making my memory not so great, or maybe it's age. I don't know, my mom's lived to 101. I just don't think I'm gonna have a very good memory by the time I get there, if I have to live that long. But, uh, so I'm worried about that. But I do feel that I get enough sleep time. If I'm sleeping five or six hours a night, I do feel like I'm getting enough sleep time in the winter time, but I force myself to stay in bed for another hour or two. And then, if I can, I love to have an afternoon nap, even, even if it's a half an hour, but an hour is better, simply because at that time of day, I'm, I'm starting to, like, there's nothing that's going to feel better for me than to just lay my head down and fall asleep. And I do love my afternoon naps, So that is where I feel like I am long term.
1: We've covered a lot of ground today, Hannah, from Dr. Mander's discussion about how sleep or lack thereof can impact our brains to hearing from Anna Borland-Ivey about the realities of not sleeping in the middle of the salmon season.
0: Yeah. And one of our goals in this podcast is for people to finish each episode with some idea of what they can do to improve their own health and well-being. So in these last few minutes, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Mander again, who kindly provided us with some key take-home messages on how to cope with fatigue and sleepiness, maximize the sleep that you can get and keep yourself and your crew safe in low sleep environments.
2: When you're able to, to get strategic napping in. And now the best way to nap to get alertness to improve is not to sleep for two hours it's to sleep for less than 20 minutes and a matter of fact one of the best ways to maximize short-term alertness when you're extremely sleepy is to have a coffee or something with caffeine in it then take a 20 minute nap by the time that gets in your bloodstream and is operating your nap is done And what this really does is it dissipates. It kind of does at a more extreme level what those microsleeps are doing. So when microsleep, when you've gnawed off, your brain is basically trying its hardest to stay awake, but the pressure to sleep is just too high. And so it just turns itself into sleep. And that sleep dissipates some of the drive and you're able to wake up again. Well, if you do the 20-minute nap, you basically give yourself a sustained enough period of sleep to get into the lighter stages of sleep, basically get rid of some of that sleepiness, and then you wake up and you're more alert. And then these, this, this caffeine will boost your alertness even more. So that's a common you know, fatigue management solution. As a matter of fact, if you're tired and you're driving on the road, a lot of people talk about maybe they'll play really loud music or blow cold air or pinch themselves. That stuff doesn't really actually work. This has been actually systemically studied. Uh, maybe you'll have a short-term alertness boost for 10 or 15 minutes, but you'll fall asleep again at the wheel. But this napping approach does work kind of organize your time off duty to maximize whatever sleep you can get. Engage in de-stressing techniques so that the pressure to sleep during that time doesn't overwhelm you and ruin your sleep, which is a common worry, right? This is a common issue. So engaging in that to have healthy behaviors, making sure your timing of sleep is consistent as possible is, I would say, as important as making sure the duration or quality is, is good. So having consistent regular schedule can help with your sleep. Um, making sure it's at the right time of day at night and not only sleeping during the day is better because that's when your biology has designed to do is to sleep at night. Um, one is to kind of learn how to recognize the, the signs of fatigue in yourself and others. Um, there's some of them are a little bit personal and some people get sleeping very specific ways. But, you know, there are certain sort of body postures or positions you slouch more. Um, your, your, your muscles are a little bit more limp when you're more tired, takes more effort to do things. You know, so noticing sleepiness in others is really important because it's sometimes very hard to notice sleepiness in itself. Um, so partnering up in teams and noticing that, protecting each other from accidents is, is, is an important thing that can be done.
1: Thanks for joining us today. In this episode, you've heard from Dr. Bryce Mander at the University of California, Irvine, and Anna Borland-Ivey, who is a salmon fisherman in Bristol Bay and makes her home in Homer, Alaska. Join us again next time when we dig deeper into sleep disorders, stimulants like energy drinks and caffeine, and how sleep deprivation can impact our sense of risk and reward.
0: Fishing Forward is a production of the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety and Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. We love to hear your feedback. You can share your thoughts with us via email at fishing at necenter.org. That's fishing at N-E-C-E-N-T-E-R dot Or you can leave us a voicemail by calling 607-221-4448. And of course, you can also visit us on the Fishing Forward podcast webpage at www.coastalroots.org forward slash fishing forward
1: pod that we do our best to bring you accurate information and lived experiences in this podcast please remember that all of the health related information presented here is the opinion of the interviewees and it should not be interpreted as licensed medical advice as always talk to your physician about your own health needs and circumstances
0: fishing forward is funded by the northeast center for occupational health and safety We also receive support from the Alaska Marine Safety Education Association, Oregon State University, the Pacific Northwest Agricultural Safety and Health Center, Fishing Partnership Support Services, the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, the Nora Agriculture, Forestry and Fishing Council, the Southwest Center for Agricultural Health, Injury Prevention and Education, and the Local Catch Network. Stay sailing!